paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Like what? I'm never thinking about anybody, except myself. Well, you don't think I'd go without you. You mean that, Stan? Absolutely. You satisfied? Oh, Stan, I don't care for nothing now. Nothing in the world. You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind uh -oh. of a... It takes one to catch one. Listen to me. I'm no good. I never pretended to be. But I love you. I'm a hustler. I've always been one. But I love you. I may be the thief of the world, but with you I've always been on the level. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andrew Nettie. Greetings. We continue November 2022 with a look at Edmund Goulding's Nightmare Alley. Released in 1947, the film stars Tyrone Power as Stanton Carlyle, a smooth operator at the carnival. He works his way through a trio of women and a string of jobs, always looking for that next big score and always haunted by the howl of the geek. We will be spoiling this film, the source novel, the recent remake, all that kind of stuff as we go along. You have been warned. So, Sam, when was the first time you remember seeing Nightmare Alley, and what did you think? For my old blog, I did this 150-film noir series where I watched one every day and wrote a short review. And that was like how I kind of trained myself to be a more disciplined writer. And... Some of them I had seen before, but most of them were new to me. This is probably at this point, like 12, 13 years ago. 
And my mind was totally blown by Nightmare Alley. Like, I loved it so much. I honestly, I don't think I had seen it since then until I rewatched it to talk about for this episode. And it's wild how much of it remained vivid in my memory. It's it's just so unforgettable. And Andrew, how about yourself? There was a period I went through about 10, 12 years ago, probably around about the same time as Sam had her blog. I can't believe you had a blog where I really made a conscious effort to re-watch Old Noir, and I would try and watch a couple a week with my partner. We watched them, and I think Nightmare Alley was on pretty early. We, we, we got to Nightmare Alley pretty early in that effort. I was still sort of trying to develop a sort of critical framework to assess and judge sort of noir and film noir, but it was obvious even then that that really stood out as being a cut above a lot of other film noirs, if for no other reason than the fact that it was a genuine sort of noir. It was bleak and it was it was incredibly dark and, 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 and even despite the sort of redemptive ending that they'd sort of tacked on the end, it was incredibly, incredibly transgressive. I, I love Tyrone Power and I thought, you know, it was such a great role. I love Carnival Noir. I love crime films that teach me about a particular way of doing a crime. Like I love card shark and gambling films and poker fil- crime films. And I love heist films because, you know, they're trying to teach you how to do a particular type of dark deed or crime. And, and Nightmare Alley was great in the way that it sort of educated you in that whole world of the carny, which of course the book also does fantastically. So. Yeah, it's terrific. And I, I just, I just think I rewatched it. I've rewatched it a couple of times, I think, since that first time I saw it. And I've loved it every time. And of course, I rewatched it for this podcast. And again, was, was reminded about just what a good film it was. I saw this one a few years ago and I can't remember exactly when. I want to say that this was tough to find on VHS and DVD for a while. I want to say that there are a lot of rights issues or there was fighting between producer George Jetzel and the who is it 20th century fox that owns this one and just them going back and forth so it was kind of tough to see for a while so when it came out legitimately on dvd it was somewhat of a big deal like oh here's this movie that you couldn't legitimately see for a while i don't think i tracked this one through like video search miami or anything because it probably showed on tv and they were probably selling recordings off of tv like they were want to do i liked it i liked it i didn't love it Whoa, whoa there. Definitely had its hooks in me. I love Tyrone Power. I loved a lot of the stuff in here. I just don't think that I got it as much as I should have the first time. I was very fortunate recently. Eddie Muller was supposed to be in town showing a bunch of noir films. They do that every September here in Detroit. He was sick. Hopefully Eddie's better soon. And they ended up showing Nightmare Alley on 35mm, so seeing that for this podcast in 35 was a revelation. And seeing it in a dark movie theater with a whole bunch of people that were really into the movie, wow. And then I've watched it quite a few times since then. This was just a few weeks ago, and listened to the book, watched the remake, all this kind of stuff, and this movie, it is something. And I love how It's not direct about a lot of the things that are going on, but it definitely gets the message across. I mean, Stanton 
is a Lothario to beat all Lotharios. He basically, like I said in the intro, just goes through a whole series of women just always looking for that next thing. And I kind of appreciate that they're not very subtle as far as him having sex with three different women throughout this film. I'd love that noir always push the edge in that way. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting the way that it gets kind of maybe watered down a little bit in the, in the film. So when I rewatched it today, I watched it with my partner who had never seen it before and didn't know the plot, hadn't read the book. And he got very confused at the part where Stan and Molly, it's sort of implied that they go off and have sex. And when they come back and everyone sort of freaks out and they're forced to get married, he was like, wait a minute, what's, what's happening here? I was like, I was like, duh, they just had sex. He was like, when? I was watching it. That never happened. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is a late 40s Hollywood film. So I, I don't know if it's because I know the book and I've seen it a bunch of times. I, I think it has this amazing way of getting all of that kind of seediness across while showing very little and, you know, keeping up with the production code. And it just, it's hard to think of anything that, is that kind of slimy from that period? Yeah, I think Woody Hot calls it uh, code sex, which is a great way of describing it. I I, <laughs> I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I rewatched. I mean, I'm going to jump jump into this right now and say, uh, you know, just just talk about the remake, I, I, which I I rewatched. I saw it when it came out in the cinema, and I rewatched it again for this podcast. And I liked it much more than I did the first time, but I still think. The original has this less is more thing, which I think really works. I think the sex thing is one thing. I found the remake, which I like a lot, but it's just remarkably sterile in terms of sex, I found. I also found that the sleaziness, the book is incredibly sleazy. The book is incredibly, there's so much sex and there's so much sleaze in it, which is terrific. The film plays around with that, but is somehow more impactful than the original 1947 film is somehow more impactful. Than the than the remake. The other the other aspect of that is the geek. The geek is really made a big deal of in the remake, but in the original we really just see the geek out of the corner of our eye, and and he remains this this creature of fear, this thing that's not really talked about, that's not really seen, and the the way they do that in the original makes him a much more effective sort of creature, whereas he feels quite normalised in the in the remake. So I, I agree. There's a whole lot of aspects of that in the in the original film which are just it's just terrific how they work around this stuff i love how they show quote unquote the geek in the 47 i can't remember if it's a pan or if it's a tracking shot but it's just the barker up there saying uh, this creature there he is the geek he has puzzled the foremost scientists of europe and america is he the missing link is he man or beast some have pronounced him man, but beneath that shaggy mane of hair lies the brain of a beast. Look, if he should as much as sink his teeth into my arm, nothing on this round green earth could save me. Now, folks, it's feeding time. Then when he throws the chickens down and you just 
see the feathers flying and you are already moving on to the next act, the fire breather, and then you hear the scream of the chickens. To me, that is more effective than actually seeing the guy bite the head and then the animatronic chicken, or maybe it's a digital effect going on. And I'm just like, no, I'd rather see the feathers flying and hear the scream of the chicken than actually see the guy bite into the chicken's neck because it's worse in my head than what I actually, when I see it, it's yeah, kind of tame. I'm like, uh, well, this is pretty, you know, humiliating to this poor guy. And meanwhile, in the 47, you're just like, oh, wow, this is really bad. And then that Stanton is a little obsessed with the geek and the way that he's asking around about it. And when he asks the, the guy that owns the sideshow about it, he's just like, hey, you mind your own business. And it's just like, oh, this is a touchy subject. And I do love the uh, the uh, sideshow owner when he's just like, oh, I never thought you'd be interested in this because it doesn't have a skirt on it. I'm like, oh, wow. Nice. Good line. I can't remember in the 47 version. I can't remember. It's certainly very early or maybe even the first night that Stanton is in the carnival and there's those screams and all you hear is that person just saying, oh, yeah, they're breaking in a new geek. So one of the things that I love so much about this movie is that there are times where it feels like it's about to become a horror film and that scene where it's just like really dark inside the carnival tents. And then you just hear this like horrific screaming and this person or this thing like flailing around like far, far in the back of the frame. It's so scary. I'm sure somebody like Eddie Mueller has come up with a term for this, but I feel like there's this type of forties and fifties thriller film noir movies where they have all these elements that they take from horror films and like gothic horror. And to me, this, I think part of what I love so much about this is that it sort of approaches that territory where you sometimes wonder, it almost reminds me a little bit of what Cornell Woolrich does in some of his books. And like night has a thousand eyes where you, you kind of wonder like, is this supernatural or is this going to become a horror film at some point? And here, I just like his obsession with the geek is parallels his descent into monstrosity. It's like, no matter how many times you see the movie, it's you just like, can't look away. I love that scream of the geek. And I love that the scream comes up multiple times as you go through this movie, that it is just this constant reminder for Stanton Basically, it's his future. I mean, the geek is the harbinger for him. He's just like, he is on a direct path to that. He may not know that, but he is headed right towards that geek cage. He might as well start getting used to the taste of feathers pretty soon here because I just love that they bring that noise up on the soundtrack. I think three more times after he's out of the circus, two of them are pretty close together but just it's like, hey, don't forget about me. Don't forget about the geek because you're going to be me pretty soon. Mike, it sometimes feels like we're all just a few steps away from being the geek. I tell you what. I, but, can't, I can't argue with that. <laughs> and, and again, in the remake, see, he's sleeping next to the geek, which makes me think it just completely robs the geek of any kind of geek mystique, mystical horror. Yeah, geek mystique. Exactly. The other aspect of that, building on what Sam said, I think, is what what I really liked about the the, the, the original film when I rewatched it this time is that obviously all these carnival people they're all hustlers. They're all trying to they're all hustling various scams to make money. 
they sort of mock and look down on the sort of the rubes who come and are easily tricked and parted from their money from from what now probably in 2022 looks like these really ridiculously overwrought, obviously fake acts, but scratch the surface and nearly all of them in some way believe in, in, in an aspect of what they're, what they're doing and they're scared of it. Zena really believes the tarot cards and she's, she's scared when there's bad tarot card readings. Molly is sort of a bit creeped out by, but, but, you know, there's this whole thing about, oh, it's all, it's all right to do what we're doing now, but look, we can't do spook shows. Spook shows are really bad because you're playing with stuff you shouldn't play with. Stanton does this wonderful thing. I think there is a transition in the film where he actually almost starts to believe actually what he's doing. And, and he believes that he, I think it's after he's, after he, he sees off that southern sheriff that's trying to shut down the show and he starts to go, actually, I can kind of, do that and and other people are scared for him because they think no you're playing with stuff that you shouldn't be actually playing with and and of course they're all terrified of the geek who is the most the lowest form of carnival act but yet the thing that dominates the entire carnival is the geek and as you say that the, the shouts and the cries of the geek breaking in a geek we need the geek it's yeah you know, that's that horror thing that's that's lying underneath it all and I love his refrain of I was made for this. Like when we first, when we first see Stanton, he looks like he might be a rube, even though it's Tyrone power. He's got the, the t-shirt on. He's just kind of going through the crowd. We don't know exactly who this guy is. And then pretty soon we realize, Oh no, he actually works for this carnival. He's going to be helping out here. And when he speaks with Zena and he's just like, lady, I was made for this. And, you know, talks about how the superior feeling he gets looking at those rubes out there. You like this racket, don't you? Oh, lady, I was made for it. I had all kinds of jobs before this one came along, but none of them were anything but jobs. But this gets me. I don't like it. All of it, the crowds, the noise, the idea of keeping on the move. See those yokels out there? It gives you sort of a superior feeling. as as if you were in the know and they were on the outside looking in kind of hard to explain but i like it and he does you can see that joy on his face when he's doing this and i this is kind of normalized like this carnival life it kind of reminds me of the the sadly canceled show carnival where it's just like this is our life the normal people quote unquote the outsiders are the ones that we are just trying to fleece we're the people that we're going to band together and stick with this and we've got our own codes and all this kind of stuff, you know, like, yeah, don't mess with religion. Don't mess around with tarot cards. You know, don't, don't try to cross the gods, those kind of things. And I, yeah, I just, I really like how he just is constantly feeling his way through this and just how, how much he gets off on being better than all those people around him. That's something that really frustrates. So full disclosure, I have only made it through about half of the remake, which I found to be extremely bloated. But, you know, we'll we'll talk about that more in depth later. But the thing that frustrated me the most, I think, is that contrast in the way that Tyrone Power portrays Stan versus the way that Bradley Cooper does. And it's not that it like, I didn't think it was a bad performance, but in the remake, it seems like all of these things happen to him. Like Xena very aggressively seduces him. Whereas like you were saying, 
a bit ago, in the novel and in the original film, there's just this like Lothario sense that not only does he get off from, you know, conning these like regular people rubes in the crowd, but it's almost like he's addicted to proving that he's better than people in some way and conquering people. And that includes women. And so it's, it's less to me that like, you know, he becomes this monster by the end because of his journey and more that he just like kind of steps into who he is more and more as all of these things happen. And Tyrone Power, I wish that he had gotten to, to do more roles like this because he's just so incredible in it. And how good does he look in a Watt t-shirt? It's true. And it's weird to me that he's older than Joan Blundell is, that they're playing him as like a 25-year-old and she's supposed to be much older. And I mean, Joan Blundell is gorgeous at whatever age, but that is hilarious to me that he's actually older than she is. And going to the novel, we get so much more of his life. And we'll talk a little bit more about his familial relationship. In this one, he is an orphan. But I, it's kind of weird that he's actually a virgin the first time he has sex with Xena. Wow. I didn't expect that because in this one, we join him already in C2. He is just like, yes, I am. I'm this guy. And he's been fucking for years, probably. And just on his way through all of this, super confident and everything. The whole thing of him doing the cold reading. I like that. It's, it's a great moment in this movie. It's an even bigger moment in the book because it's his first time ever doing any sort of cold reading. And it feels like he's probably done a little bit already when we're talking about the movie, but he's definitely has watched how it's done. He's watched Xena. He's, he's participated in that act. He, you know, eventually is doing the whole code thing with her and with him and Xena. But I really like when it's Xena and Stanton in the truck and Pete in the back. And they're talking about the code that they need to, that they used to use and how Pete just kind of is like, Hey, do you know how much that is worth? And yada, yada, yada. There's a moment where Xena gives Stanton a look and I'm just like, Oh, that's it. Oh, they are going to fuck. Okay. Until then it feels like they're just kind of coworkers friends, but then she just gives him a look and you're just like, Oh, well that's it. These two are now going to have a romantic relationship. I didn't realize that this was coming. Yeah. She is fantastic in that film. as Joan Blondell. I mean, she's so blousey and sort of over the hill, but so vital and she's, she's terrific. I think, you know, and I mean, I think I thought they'd already fucked actually before that truck scene well before that. I mean, that was, I mean, but that's the thing. There's so much sex in this film that you can't quite figure out when it's going on and when it's not. The other aspect of the original that's better than the remake, the first half of the film is all about Stan and the code. You really build that thing up, that book, the code. We've got to figure out what this code is. It's just an amazing thing. It's our ticket to money. Pete's really sort of holds on to the code very hard. It's it almost becomes a sort of mystical sort of thing in its own right. Whereas in the remake, it's just like, hey, here's the code. It's in that book. Yeah, they just give it to him. There's this line where in the remake, Xena, like, he says something to her like, do you want the book back? And she's she's like, no, you've earned it. And she makes it seem like like you fucked me enough so that now the book is yours. But it just like the stakes are so different. 
earlier when I mentioned that I feel like this kind of juts up against gothic supernatural tones, they really give you an understanding of how cold reading works. And because it pops up so often throughout the film and you see different characters doing it to each other, it's different than what's going on with the code. Because like we never really learn the code, we just learn a little bit about it. It makes it feel like you kind of wonder, is he doing this for real somehow? Like, how could they possibly have that have like built that many different words into the code that she could just say different versions of who signed this this note? And what does the question say? It's like, how? The gentleman has a question. What is it? The question is, will I feel better tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) Have you an answer? Yes. This boy's got something. You're not taking him seriously. Why not? Why do you think I'll show you. Isn't it some sort of a code they use? Of course. Notice how deliberately she accents certain words. This question. Can you tell me how it is signed? It is signed with the initial R. That's right. Now, can you describe the person who wrote this question? She's very beautiful. I agree with you, Mr. Stanton. She's quite beautiful. Now, will you read the lady's question? One of the two people on the audio commentary that's on the Criterion disc, he definitely believes that Stanton has supernatural powers, and the other one doesn't. So to listen to that commentary, it's hilarious. And also, it's like, oh, listen to this music cue. This is a theremin. It's like, that's not a theremin. That's just strings. And they're just, like, going at it. And I kind of love how much they bicker. Like, (laughs) it's so funny. Because I'm, like... Stanton has no supernatural powers whatsoever. This is all just him being a con artist and being able to read people, being able to take lucky guesses. You know, he gets really lucky with Lilith later on in the film. But for me, it's just like, yeah, this is all just him being a con artist. Meanwhile, one of the two commentators just like, oh, no, no, he, th- there's there's too much stuff. He can't know this. So <laughs> it's pretty funny. But it does do that good job of, as I say, treading that fine line between these people as immoral con people and also, oh, there's, there's a sort of underlying, underlying aspect of it that you, that you do think, oh, you can see how people would have been watching it in 1947 going, oh, yeah, how's that done? That's really amazing. That's, you know, maybe not in 2022 or when the Criterion thing came back. The other aspect I think linked to that is, I mean, I think the person in the original that really steals the show, though, is um, the psychiatrist Helen Walker as Dr. Lilith Ritter. She is astounding. And watching her again this time, I just thought, God, she's just such a not a typical femme fatale. I love how she is just an infinitely better con person than, than Stanton Carlyle is, which is what the whole film builds it up around. And I love the in the film, and, I, and they do do this in the remake a bit. But in the original film, I love the the equivalence they sort of do between this weird, carny, mentalist spook show act that people do and psychoanalysis. And they're basically both the same sort of. They're both basically both scams, and they're basically both things that that their their purveyors, um, Stanton Carlyle and Lilith Ritter used to basically get their way. And I just think that is such a fantastic thing that the film does. And I've definitely seen some articles like this, but you could write a really interesting piece on 
what film noir in the 40s and 50s has to say about psychiatry and psychoanalysis and like none of it is good <laughs> it this would make such an interesting double feature so there are definitely things about this that remind me of some of Otto Preminger's films from around the same period where he has all of these characters who are just trying to manipulate and scam each other and in Whirlpool it's sort of a similar thing where this psychiatrist seems to have these like mesmerist powers and it, it goes beyond, you know, trying to help someone through their trauma. But even she, like her performance here, it, it's so amazing. Like the way that they have her dressed, she's so kind of masculine and sexual and threatening in a weird way. But I feel like Joan Crawford played some characters who had some things in common, like powerful, ambitious women who often like they need to sort of prove their dominance. She doesn't do that at all. It's like she does it a little bit when she tries to fuck with him during his his performance. But it's like she just like plays this long game where she just cons the hell out of him. And it is beautiful to watch. (laughs) Now, will you read the lady's question? The question is, do you think my mother will recover from her present illness? Is that correct? What is your answer? I'm afraid a truthful reply to that question will appear rather strange. I I don't know whether I should answer it or not. Why? I get the impression that the lady's mother has been dead for some time. If that is incorrect, will the lady please say so? I must assume that the lady's silence means assent. Do you notice she never actually says my mother is dead. Like she gets close to it. Like I think she says at one point, how did you know my mother was dead? But she's still not admitting that her mother's dead. I think she sees the potential of him, but the potential of him with dollar signs in her eyes, the way that she kind of plays this game and is, and is like faux shocked at certain things. She is one of the most manipulative femme fatales ever. And I love that she gets, neither, you know, married or punished or anything at the end of this, she gets away clean. I love it. Like almost every single time she would get her comeuppance. Mm -mm, Nope. And the scene where it's like you, you, once you get to the place where you realize, oh, she's conning him. And I think when my brain sort of registered it, it's like, all right, they're obviously playing some kind of game, but knowing that it's a Hollywood film she probably only has a number of possible character paths that she can go down because of the, you know, production code and things like that. And it it sort of like registered in my brain, like, oh, she must be conning him during this scene where she tries to convince him to go to this beach club with her in the wintertime. And she says, no one will be there. She basically is saying, hey, I'm going to fuck you if you come back to this to this beach club with me. And he's like, no, we shouldn't even risk the chance of being seen in public. In my head, I was like, wait a minute. She knew he was going to say no. She just she's playing him. But like, to what end? And it's like, once you realize she's stealing the money, it's amazing. But then the whole like con she has set up where she's basically trying to get him sent to a mental asylum. (laughs) It's just like layers and layers. They have the hottest code sex of, in the entire film, I think, where it's it's not even clear when they even fuck, but they have. I thought that whole, is that 
when she wanted him to go to that club, was that when she appeared on that boat? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought I thought that that actually they had sex after that. But anyway, that I just think yeah, she she's got the most amazing oh feminine masculine energy. I think, and, and they have the weirdest vibe, the two of them together. It's 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 fantastic. I think I love that because it, it's also, as you say, Sam. There's 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 this huge swathe of film noir, and it's it's not just film noir, but also horror film, which is all about amnesia, psychoanalysis, people basically being treated in the, in asylums or for, for, for various things. And I mean, that's obviously got to do a lot with the war. I mean, you know, the trauma of the war and things like that. I think that comes out really psychoanalysis, as I say, as this as this almost mystical thing which people want to believe in almost as much as you know Stanton being able to to read minds uh, and I'm also was curious too I was watching it this time thinking because of course she records her sessions on that uh on that I don't know how much of a re- of a revolutionary technology that must have been 1947 is I don't know recording I should have looked that up actually recording the sessions I assume not because it just, it made me think, so I'm on my like 10,003 read of Dracula right now. And it made me think of the way that Dr. Seward records all of his notes on phonograph. And if that's the late 1800s, like I'm sure it's, it's not done very often, but it also, it makes you wonder. And I don't, maybe I missed this in dialogue, but Like, obviously, her recording these sessions winds up benefiting their mutual scam. But, like, why was she recording the sessions in the first place? Like, what is she using them for? She gives a throwaway line about, oh, I use them to take notes. But I'm like, really? Like, no, you don't. (laughs) No, I don't believe you. I really don't believe you. And, yeah, this whole, like, "Eh, well, yeah, I could tell you a little bit about this. But, you know, the... I'm just like a priest. I can't uh, divulge any of this stuff. And, you know, so is Stan, the way that Stan has his patter. Yeah, his patter and that he really just starts to layer in. Like, even when he does the cold reading of the the cop that comes to close down the carnival, and he's just like, You have the strength within you, an everlasting supply. But not to crush, to uplift, repay evil with good. Love your neighbor. Do not hate your enemies. Forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Don't forget to err is human. To forgive, divine. I just really love that he had religion beaten into him in his early life in the orphanage. And then that he, he basically does like an Alex DeLarge and is just like, Oh yeah, no. Then when I went to reform school, I let the chaplain save me. And that's how I got out on parole. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty clever there. There's a scene with, I think it's relatively early in Lilith's and Stanton's relationship when she does something and he questions it and she says, Oh, look, just call it a professional courtesy. Which is even when, which is even when she's sort of saying that we're both two scammers. T- takes one to get one. So look, I get, I get where you're coming from. You get where I'm coming from. Of course, he doesn't actually really get where she's coming from because she out, she out scams him massively. And this is something that would be, I mean, really good to talk about in terms of the sequel later on about how they play that particular relationship, which I don't think they do quite as well. It's even more insidious because when she says to him, call it a professional courtesy, it's basically his first analysis session where he sits down on the couch and 
like tells her everything that happened with Pete and basically, basically confesses that he more or less killed Pete. And so it's like, finally unburdens himself, takes probably hours of her time. And she's like, no, 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 this is, it's, it's on me. And it's like, yeah, it is. Yeah. You're probably recording that the whole time. So now you have all this dirt on Stan. That's when he slips up. Uh, Dame gets him. I mean, Molly sure doesn't get him. Molly's a, Molly's an interesting character. She in the book has all these daddy issues. There's this whole thing about her father who uh, used to bet the horses all the time and him saying, you know, never go to bed with somebody that you would not want to share your toothbrush with. And when she finally meets Stanton, she's like, oh, here's somebody I could share my toothbrush with. (laughs) (laughs) And she's just such an innocent, but at the same time, she works at the carnival, so she knows all this stuff. She's not that innocent. And that weird relationship with Bruno, Mike Mazurki, who I fucking love. I always love when yeah, Mazurki shows great. up and he's stuff. Yep. And with blonde hair, which was kind of odd. But that relationship, I, it's like, are you a big brother figure? Are you a father figure to her? Do you want to fuck her? In the book, it's he has a crush on her. But in this, it's like, well, what is it? What is that relationship? And then it's him and uh, Xena when Molly goes off on them a little bit where it's like, hey, where were you? We were looking for you after that cop tried to roust us. And she's like, what is it to you anyway? And they're like, oh, you guys just had sex. Okay, well, you better get married now. And Berserky, when he puts them in a headlock and stuff, I was like, oh, it almost kills it. Yes. Yeah. It's like. It's not a shotgun wedding, it's a full Nelson wedding. The Just the way that the aftermath of that scene plays out, it's like every single moment, it's so clear who Stan is. Like, he's forced to go through with this marriage, and then he has that one-on-one scene with Molly where she, it's like she can tell that, like, this is not the way things should have gone, But he manipulates her and says, like, oh, no, 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 I did want to get married. I just didn't want it to happen this way. And you're like, it's like, no, you didn't (laughs) at all. (laughs) I don't know if I've seen Colleen Gray and much stuff. I think she she was in some other noirs, wasn't she? She was. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, she is one hot tamale. I tell you what, she is. And that scene, I, I still think, I know it's the stillness that you always see for the film, but that scene when she is in that. Her carnival dress that, that that she's she's forced to wear so she doesn't burst into flames. <laughs> yeah, and, and and she's conducting electricity is one of the hottest scenes in film noir in terms of you know I mean her being so sensual. It's also great. It also links into that psychoanalysis thing and the recording thing and a whole of aspects about how this film taps into sort of like you know the mid-century modern electricity and neon and you know psychoanalysis and all these amazing things and you're right she she's in a bunch of film noir she's in like kiss of death and kansas city confidential and i feel like she kind of plays these sorts of characters often where she has this like weird combo of innocence and sex appeal the film doesn't have, arguably doesn't really have a moral center, but if there's any moral character that probably comes out of it, it's Molly. 
when he crosses that line and starts going into the spook show stuff, she's just like, you need to leave God out of this. And the first time I watched it, I was just like, well, that seems kind of sudden. Then on subsequent viewings, I'm like, okay, I can see where she's coming from. I I thought maybe there was a scene missing at first, but I was like, okay, no, I, I get this. You know, you're going against God is what she actually says. And I'm like, she knows the code and not to go over that line. Even if you don't care about religion or feel like that sort of moral code is ambiguous, there is this sense that like he just there's there's never a boundary. It's like he just wants to take it as far as he can get. And she starts to recognize on some level that he's taking it too far. And like, if he's successful with this spiritualist angle, it's like, what's after that? Right. Yeah. Cause he goes from the sideshow into the nightclub and then starts to do the spiritual stuff and the spiritual stuff in the book. I think it's much more expanded. You have this whole thing of them taking that Mrs. Peabody character, the one whose daughter is missing the one that he faints over they basically go into her house and rig it all up and like they're doing seances there. And eventually he convinces her to give him the house so he can now have a church and rigs a the whole a tabernacle. Thank you. Rigs the whole house up to have all of these things with like projectors and sound equipment. And it's really super elaborate. All of the things that he does. And then he's got this like spirit guy, this Indian voice guy that is talking to them. I can't remember the, the guy's name, but it is Stan just doing another voice. And it's like, wow, th- this is pretty remarkable. And that's how they lure in this, guy that's basically like a Henry Ford type of guy that pulls in Ezra Grindle that way. And man, oh man. And Ezra Grindle, I feel a little bad for him in the movie, in the 47 movie. But holy shit, when he, I mean, basically it's this whole thing of him having his teenage love get an abortion, which of course I can't talk about in a 1947 movie. She gets an abortion. She ends up having complications and dies when she shows up again to him, it's a lot more than him just running up and trying to hug her. He basically tries to have sex with his teenage girlfriend. It's really bad. And that's when not only is the jig up because of Molly, but also because Stanton has to beat this guy down to get him off of Molly. I totally understand that there's so much from the novel that couldn't have made it into a late 40s film. But it's just amazing that they still approach the same feeling of just like moral squalor. It's an achievement. The question is how they managed to get so much of what's in the novel in there. As you say, there's so much of the the mentalism, the spooks, though. There's still still a lot of the sex, uh, the scammers. They get quite a bit of it in there. Yeah, I I do wish that we could have gotten a segment inside the rigged-up house and – that movie you suggested that we watch, uh, The Amazing Mr. X, I I feel like that's almost like the missing section of the novel in movie form with different, slightly different characters. I had never seen it before, and it was amazing. Uh, why there aren't more of those, like, supernatural scammer movies, and there, there are definitely a few, like House on Haunted Hill goes into that territory, but it's just... It's so good because it's just, you feel like you have to take a shower. 
how good would it have been to if Statner had also a crow that fed him cigarettes? <laughs> Which was the amazing thing about the amazing Mr. X. That crow was fa- I had seen that before and I re I just did a quick rewatch of it. And it is a great it is a great film for all those reasons you mentioned. But I just particularly this time thought that crow is fantastic. He walks around with that crow on his shoulder, it feeds him cigarettes. We should all be so lucky. There's an absolutely bizarre comedy from 1940 starring Kay Kaiser and his orchestra, including Ishka Bibble. And it is, uh, it's called You'll Find Out. And it all takes place at a house that is rigged up very much like that. It's like, who is it? Is it, um, Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff are in it. Right. Boris Karloff and, and, um, uh, Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi plays the mentalist. Yeah. And oh my God. I've, I've seen it twice now and I'm amazed that I was able to make it through twice just because Ishka Bibble is amazingly annoying. Uh, not that Kate Kaiser's much better, but the strength of the rest of the actors and just how, how off it is. I mean, it's basically like a Bowery Boy movie without the Bowery Boys. You know, it's, it's wonderful. I watched one of those recently. I, I watched this uh, Charlie Chan movie called Black Magic, where somebody dies during a seance and he very quickly figures out that he's about to go back to Honolulu and he's doing the local police a favor. And within like two seconds, figures out that the whole house is rigged. It's, it's similar, though. While we're talking seance movies, have any of you clocked a film called Seance on a Wet Afternoon? Yes. 1964, Brian Forbes, it's a British film, potentially the most downbeat British film of 19, of the 1960s, which is saying something about this, this medium or this wannabe medium and her henpecked husband. So the, the medium's Kim Stanley, the henpecked husband Bill is, is Richard Attenborough. And they, well, she hatches this plan to kidnap the daughter of a rich family so that she can then step in and pretend and, and they, they stash the daughter in one of the rooms of their of their creepy house and they've done the room up as a hospital room so when the daughter wakes up she thinks she's in hospital and so they do this so that Myra the woman can then step in offer her services to the kidnapped girl's father and say look I can solve this crime for you and tell you where your daughter's your kidnapped daughter is and it is the most incredible, and it's all it's all bound up with Myra's trauma over the stillbirth of her son. And God, it's good. I've been dying to see it. I've heard nothing but great things about it. I, it's, it's like what what a great sub sub genre. I mean, that's another one of those films. It was based on a book. I haven't read the book. And apparently, in the original screenplay, the medium and her henpecked husband was actually two gay guys. Oh wow! Yeah, that would have been wow. amazing. But, but nonetheless, you look at this film and you—it's just absolutely remorseless in how downbeat. And he kind of knows she's fucked up over the the stillbirth of the of the child, and you know he goes along with this plot and he's kind of bumbling in terms of, of kidnapping the of the of t- kidnapping the girl. They keep they stash her up in the hospital room. In the, in the, in the room, which they've done up as a hospital room. And of course, the, the cops are circling. And I spot it, it all goes horrifically, not horrifically wrong, but it all starts to fall apart where, when the wife starts to believe that she really is a medium and that her dead, stillborn son is communicating with her to keep, to kill the girl they've kidnapped so she can be with the dead, stillborn son in the afterlife. 
and it just goes. That's demented. It is. No, it's, but it's essentially a, a scammer. They're both scammers. Although, again, like potentially like Stanton, Myra, the woman who, you know, the main character in Seance on a Wet Afternoon, starts to believe that she really is a spiritualist and really can communicate with people and mistakes profound trauma over the death of her son with actually some kind of spiritual link to the afterlife. Aren't there elements of that in Family Plot, the Hitchcock movie? Yes, I think there are. I haven't seen it in forever, and it's it's obviously more comedic and less, you know, bleak, but it's such a great avenue to write about truly demented characters. If there was one thing I would like more of with the 47 Nightmare Alley is more of Stan's decline and just him going farther and farther down. There's definitely more of that in the book as well. There's a, a railroad bull that beats the shit out of him. So even if he would be recognized at the carnival, his face is probably now really distorted. And I do love the makeup that they put on Tyrone Power towards the end. I love him doing the same thing with the bottle that Pete had done for him with all of those rest of the people in the Hooverville they even make a mention when he comes and sees the carnival guy at the end, he's just like, Oh, allow me to introduce myself. I'm chic abracadabra. I'm a mitt reader. And it's like, well, we really didn't get that part to it either, but that's okay. But it feels like the decline is a little fast towards the end. It doesn't help that they then tack on that extra scene at the end, because had they ended it with him just saying, Mr. I was made for this. Then I think that would have been one hell of an outro line. I mean, even that sequence that you mentioned with the other alcoholics, it's such a great parallel to the beginning of the film because they seem like they basically are conning him in a sense. Like they're listening to him tell this story and at least the one bum is seems to really be going along with it, but they just want him to get distracted enough that he hands over the bottle of alcohol. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) There's this great Sherlock Holmes movie with Gail Sondergaard as this sort of villainous lady who reminds me a little bit of Lilith, the psychiatrist here. And she had this like weird follow-up movie where she plays almost the same character with a totally different script. I think Universal saw that the Sherlock Holmes movie had some success. So they were like, let's just roll with it and have this other like Black Widow character continue on. I really wish that we could get a follow-up movie with Lilith just like having her further adventures of manipulating people. (laughs) Yeah, because you know she's not going to stop. No, why would she? And the thing that I like about it is I don't think she's hurting for money. I think she's just doing this for the sport. That's definitely the sense that I got. Like, she's stealing the money from him not out of greed, but because that's really just an additional way to fuck him over. Oh, yeah. It's like... You think you're better than me at this game? Here, let me teach you a lesson, little boy. I am the better hustler. That's what, it, that's what it's essentially about, I think. I'm so good of a hustler that not only am I going to steal all your money and gaslight you, but I will nearly have you committed. And you, you don't see films very often from this period where there are women gaslighting men, and it is refreshing, I have to say. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. 
Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes. ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor. Please lay down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. They fool themselves. I've given you a fortune. It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. If you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. We are back, and we're talking about Nightmare Alley, and I don't know what it was. I didn't see Nightmare Alley, the Guillermo del Toro version, until just recently, because Crimson Peak notwithstanding, I try to see almost everything that he does in the theater, but I missed Crimson Peak, and I missed Nightmare Alley, and checking it out, I mean, I already knew that there were a lot of great actors in Nightmare Alley. Uh, the, the Guillermo del Toro ver- version. Jesus Christ, I can't speak. Um, but I mean, I'm not a big Bradley Cooper guy. I'm much more about all the rest of the people that are in the movie, like your Willem Dafoe's, your Ron Perlman's. But when it comes to your main cast, I mean, I love Kate Blanchett, but Rooney Mara and Bradley Cooper, they just don't do it for me at all. I read this amazing one sentence letterbox review of this movie that's like you know <laughs> it's it's like it's like you know what Willem Dafoe seems to be having a great time and that's all that matters to me <laughs> <laughs> I mean you almost have to feel sorry for anyone sharing a film with somebody like Willem Dafoe because it's like we're all here for <laughs> we're all here for him not for you Bradley Cooper <laughs> Richard Jenkins is Grendel Grindel, I thought he was good. The other person who I really like is this guy called Holt McCallany, who plays Grindel's Enforcer, which is something they don't have in the original film. Actually, that was that was one of the few improvements I thought on the 1947 version is, is Grindel is such a more avaricious, ruthless, terrifying character. He's quite terrifying. He's just a rich fuddy-duddy in the 1947 one who's who's – 
who's done some bad things, but in the in the in the 2022 remake remake, Grindle is terrible. He is a terrifying person. His enforcer Holt McCallany, who was in that, uh, I also saw him in Mind Hunter, which I really liked. His enforcer is terrifying, and I think one of the things they do well in the remake which, as I say, I really disliked when I first saw it, and then I rewatched it for this podcast, and I it it grew on me a bit. I still don't think it's as good as the first one, but it grew on me, is they really do this incredibly effective build-up of just how dangerous swindling Grindle is and how how much this is going to fuck up Stanton and how, how much danger he's in. And, and on all these characters are basically saying, you realise, you know, Molly realises it, Grindle's enforcer basically says, if you've got any brains, you should be terrified of me if you do anything to this guy. I think that was, that was very effective, I thought. And one of the, the few things in the, in the remake that I thought was possibly a bit of an, a bit of an improvement on the, on the original. Yeah, there is something in the original film that I think kind of hints at it. And I wish they went further where you do get this sense that like we were talking about in the in the first half, Molly basically says, you know, don't go down this path because it's it's morally wrong. It's it defying God. But I think there's sort of this unspoken element that it's like the bigger fish you try to skewer, it's going to come back and bite you. And here's this rich, powerful guy who people take seriously. And like, yes, he does kind of seem like an old fuddy-duddy in the first movie. But it seems like that's sort of baked into like, here's why you shouldn't poke this sleeping bear. And I wish they made him more sinister. But Guillermo del Toro is a wonderful person and listening to him talk about movies is delightful. But sometime around Pan's Labyrinth, he just really lost me. And I find his movies to be gorgeous fairy tales that just leave me feeling kind of cold. And so with this, it's like, like Crimson Peak, I did see in theaters and hated it so much that I just kind of gave up. And so with this, it's like, the actors are all talented. It looks really great. I just, it felt like there were things they could have included from the book that you never could have included in the 40s version, like we were talking about that they don't include here. And they make they make weird choices like expanding scenes for no real reason other than like, this world is really beautiful and then let's hang out in it for as long as possible. It is very beautiful. The chase through the haunted house or whatever kind of ride you would call that. I love the set decoration on all that, all the eyes and the look at yourself and the your reflection centers and all these kind of things. That's all great. They add in the father character, but they don't do it like they had in the book. So I was like, oh, here we go. We're going to have this whole thing now with his father and his mother and his mother's lover. And they touch upon that a little bit more in this one as far as like an edible thing that's going on because – 
him sleeping with Xena is very much like him sleeping with his mother. His mother cheated on his father and ran off with this other guy, Mark Humphreys, I think it is. And Stanton always brushes back his hair, and that's something that Mark would do as well. So it's basically like he wanted to be Mark. He wanted to have sex with his mother. He didn't like his father at all. But we don't get the mother character in here. We don't get any of that kind of stuff. And I don't think he actually kills his father. I can't remember in the book if he does, but this I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. No. I don't think he does. And in this one, he's just like, oh yeah, old man, let me in this horrible, rickety old house, let me just pull this blanket off of you and just watch you die. I mean, it's pretty brutal, but it doesn't feel like it's true to the character and the way that Stanton will kind of go nuts at times when he starts to beat the geek at the beginning. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, we need this guy. And then when he beats Richard Jenkins later on, it's just like, hey, man, like you're murdering this guy in the way that he cold ganks uh, Holt McCallany. That's kind of cool. But at the same time, it's like, no, uh, you should really try to get on the road a little bit sooner here. The one thing I like about the book, too, is after he fucks over Ezra Grindle, it's not just him having a bad time. It's Ezra Grindle has people that he's sending after him and that are actively looking for him. He's on the run and it's not from the cops. It's from Grindle's private army, basically, because he does have that power. He's this guy from the 1940s, this industrialist who basically is a strike breaker, just a real piece of shit and is able to just send out detective after detective or really heavy after heavy to try to find this guy Stanton and basically bring him back so he can torture him. It is worth giving giving the 2022 version, you know, cute, it, it does look amazing, doesn't it? I mean, that, those carnival scenes are just incredible. I also think um, Lilith's office, you know, Kate Blanchett's office is just like who that it just looked that whole feel. Although they didn't have she didn't record stuff, which I thought was a bit disappointing. But um, she had reel to reel, right? Because he breaks in at night and oh, takes out. He does. Yes, yes, yes. He but ends I, up listening to all of uh, Richard Jenkins's Ezra Grindle's recordings. Yeah, it's one of these remakes. And the other film that occurred to me was The Beguiled. These remakes that for all the fact that they can show much more sex, much more violence, they're so less constrained. There's virtually nothing we can't show in a film now. They're strangely less than what the less than what the originals is. And I've actually often thought about why is this? Why why did I walk away from Nightmare Alley, which has the, the remake of Nightmare Alley, which I did like, but somehow feeling far less for, for all all the additional sex and violence, although it's actually a quite a sexless film in some respects, but for all the implied sex and certainly a hell of a lot more violence. I mean, they really lay that on thick. It's, it feels strangely sterile. I don't know. It felt, it felt less. It felt, I, I felt very dissatisfied with it. I'm not quite sure. I'm still, I've been thinking about it. I was thinking about that when I watched, watched it the first time in the cinema and I thought about this now. What is it that's lacking in this film? It just doesn't have the same level of, everyone's a con artist that the first movie has. And I think some of it has to do with the way that Bradley Cooper's character or his version of Stan plays out because 
there is this sort of difference where instead of saying he's made for it, he says he was born for it. And you do get the sense that he's maybe having some mental instability or mental health issues, like how he seems to come close to snapping. And when he redesigns Rooney Mara's act, he gives off this like real manic energy. Like, like here's a guy who isn't just turning on the enthusiasm for a grift. He just seems like kind of borderline unwell in a way that Sand doesn't in the original movie. In the original movie, it's like he he always like kind of treats things with a light touch, like waiting to see how far he's taken people in and what he can get away with. And it just like it's not as seedy as that here because even like we were talking about with the with the violence and the geek, turning that into like a splatter movie gore scene where where you see the chicken's head get bitten off, it's not scary. It's like, yeah, we've all seen blood spurt at this point. Make it more normalized or leave more up to the imagination or I, I don't know. I mean, in the, in the, as you say, in the 47 version, Stan has a backstory. He's got an unhappy past, but so did every single character in film noir just about, you know. But he's just a scammer. He's, you know, he's not working off any great, you know, generational trauma or anything like that. He's just a fucking scammer and he's good at scamming and he likes having sex and stuff like that. But, of course, we, in the remake, we have people can't just be bad people and scammers in films now. We have to give them a, 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 backsto- a backstory, which is about their trauma and how they're basically dealing with that. So as I agree with, while I thought the opening of the of the remake is quite good, Stat and Carlisle basically dragging his father's body into a you know a pit under the house and then walking away as the house burns away in the background, which looks like a Wyeth painting or something. Yeah, I've always liked that. I've always I've always wanted to basically walk away from a car and have it exploded behind me and just not not even bat an eyelid as it happens. But you know, it, it's so overwrought. This the hot Staten's backstory, and of course Lilith. Lilith can't just be a woman who is immoral. We have to give her a backstory too. She's got this horrendous scar on her chest, which is, I presume, a male gave to her, and she's kind of traumatized by that. So she, her motivation is that you know she's trying to get back at Stanton or something. And it's like sometimes people are just bad people, and they do things to each other. And it's like less is more, as you say, rather than having to inject this whole 2022 sense of trauma and backstory into it, which just makes it a bit overwrought. I love a good torrid melodrama as much as the next person, but just it feels like every story has turned into trauma porn and it's exhausting. It's a movie about trauma. It's a movie about trauma. The movie is about trauma. It's a lot about rage and trauma, rage and trauma colliding. Trauma and evil meeting. They made a movie about female trauma. Well, it's nostalgia, but it's nostalgia based on trauma. The thing I love about the 47 version, I think it's even in the book, there's no guns. This one has her having the gun in her purse and Holt having the gun. We didn't need guns. We just had the threat of it. I mean, it's a film noir from 47. Of course, like guns are pretty much, you know, on the menu for any film noir, but they don't even need them in that movie. What they add to the 2021 version 
like rather than exploring the things that they didn't explore in the book where they could have, they're like, no, we're going to add this extra stuff. We're going to make it that Stan is the person that comes up with her new act. We're going to make it that Lilith has that scar on the chest. We're going to make it that Stan has to beat the geek, all these kind of things that, that he and Clem take the geek to this church and leave him in the rain outside of it. None of that stuff is in the book. And not in the original movie, obviously. And it's like, oh man, like explore the other stuff. Talk about, you know, rather than having the polygraph test, do the thing that they did in the book where there's a locked case with this balance inside of there where it, they're in this massive building and it's all concrete and there's no vibrations. And if this thing vibrates whatsoever, this red light is going to go off and they say, okay, Mr. Stanton, you need to use your powers of mentalism to make that red light go off, somehow disturb the balance of that. And what does Stan do? He figures out or he finds out what's going to happen with this thing. He has Molly go out and get a stray cat he disappears in the bathroom for a while with a pencil, comes back out. He ne- They never even say in the book what happens. Like He tells Lilith that he will tell her at some point, and he never reveals it. So what I figure is that he has dug inside of the pencil and put fleas from the cat into that, because there is a line later on about how the cat that Ezra has, has now has fleas and like you know, go fire the person that takes care of the cat because he is able to look at it and they take, they open it up, which is a big mistake. And he accidentally drops this pencil. Wouldn't you know? So that's a pretty damn cool thing. I'm all right with the polygraph, but it's like, you know, in the uh, 47 version, you don't even see anything. He just meets her at the dock on the boat and says, Oh, you should have seen that meeting. Wow, it was great. Like, first he tried to come after me with the police, and I told him no. And it's all through discussion. And, you know, it's that famous screenwriting thing of tell, don't show. And they have great code boat sex. They are eye-fucking each other like nobody's business. Whereas I found the relationship between Kate Blanchett and Bradley Cooper just really, it just didn't sort of work. It doesn't feel like they have sex. No, no, and she's so as a, so dramatic and traumatized, and it's wrong for the character. The way that Lily in the forty-seven version, I love how her voice changes, and she goes from me on the same level as Stan to me now being the psychologist and that very professional tone to her voice. And she gets that a few times through the movie, but when she suddenly just turns it on that last time that they meet and she's just like, when you first came to me, you were in bad shape. I had hoped that by getting at the roots of your anxieties, I could avert a serious upset. Well, I seem to have failed. Wait a minute. If you're thinking of throwing the cops at me, don't forget that you've been in this with me. Please, Mr. Carlyle, try to understand that these delusions of yours in regard to me are a part of your mental condition. When I first examined you, you were being tortured by guilt reactions connected with the death of that drunken mentalist during your carnival days. Well, what are you trying to pull? You can't prove anything. Besides, it was an accident. I told you that. I'm a psychologist, not a judge. What I want to explain to you is, all these things that you think you have done lately, or that have been done to you, are merely the fancied guilt of your past life projected on the present. Do I make myself clear? You must regard it all as a nightmare. 
You know that she's playing it for the record. You know that she is just talking to him very calmly. I love that. And the look in her eyes, she is just filled with glee. Oh my God. She's just eating it up. She's just like, Oh, watch me just turn this knife in you. You know, this is the best thing I've ever done to anybody by the way that I'm fucking you over this hard. The sort of like catchphrases that she uses that now are so commonplace, like, you know, this is a classic case of transference and you're obviously putting these delusions onto me. And the way that their audio plays out versus their facial expressions, it's just such a perfect scene. And what's going on with the siren? Oh, yes. Thank you. In the scene, she basically tells him, let's have a calm conversation. She's obviously recording. And then at some point, like, you know, her, oh, there is a gun in the movie. When when he breaks into her house. Oh, you're right. Her Yeah, her housekeeper shows up with a small pistol and says, like, is everything okay here? And she's like, oh, it's fine. It's just a patient. We're going to go in the other room and have a nice chat. And then at some point, like, you get the impression that maybe the housekeeper went off to call the police and sirens go off. And... And he's like, like, I can't believe you did this to me. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, I was, tr- I was trying to figure out, are the sirens real? Or is, is she like having her housekeeper play, like press a siren recording in the other room? Like what's happening? <laughs> is it all in his head? Like the, the geek screaming? Or did she just use a verbal code with her housekeeper? Just like he would use a verbal code with Molly. You know, did she just like, oh, we're having a nice little chat, you know, is like the code word for call the police. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, I love that. We don't know for sure if those sirens are in his head or not. That is so nice. I don't think I noticed it as much in the past, but this time around, I so we, you know, we just got a new TV, so I got to see it like in this, you know, crisp, nicer Blu-ray Criterion version. And I noticed that sequence in the middle that we were talking about where you hear the geek screaming out of nowhere when he's not on screen. I noticed it much more than last time. And it is so like kind of unsettling the way that it shows up and there's no real acknowledgement of it. It's just like he's being haunted by the geek. (laughs) He gets haunted by the geek because of what the tarot card, I think, is one trigger. And then almost immediately thereafter, he's getting the massage and the masseuse is using rubbing alcohol. And once he gets a whiff of that, he hears the the geek scream again. And then I think it's towards I'm trying to remember the, the last time we hear that scream because it's just like, wow, he is really headed down this path now. Well, then he has his first drink. Yeah, that's Which it. Is it is the one thing that he's he is able to control, which is that I don't drink because I've got to be in complete control. And when he has that first glass of bourbon or whiskey, you go, nah, it's it's it's, it's geekdom for you. As I often feel, as I have a glass of whiskey, yep, down, down the road to geekdom. Yeah, they make a big deal about him not drinking in the 2021 version, and I'm like, okay, I can kind of see that. There's weird things, man. Like, sorry to just kind of rag on this, but like. Major Mosquito was in the book, but he's not in 
the original movie, but he's in the 2021 movie. There's also, and forgive me for saying it, a half man, quote unquote. It was a gentleman whose legs were uh, withered because of childhood paralysis. And he and Xena end up being together. In the 2021 version, Major Mosquito is shown doing this like martial arts stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, he's the one that's going to teach Stan this martial art move that Stan then uses on the cop that's beating him later on, like the railroad bull, I should say. That's in the book. He he murders this guy with this martial arts stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, good. We've got this missing connection. It's actually going to be in this movie. No, no, he doesn't teach him. Doesn't teach him at all. It's just just show Major Mosquito doing this martial arts stuff, and then we're just going to drop it completely. And I think I've been saying 2022 version because that's when I saw it in 19 in, in 2022. Sorry about that. That's a, that's a mistake. It is, tw- it is 2021. Yeah. Hey, the way that the years have moved over the last two years. Yeah. yeah. It's all the same. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Since March of 2020, it's all been yeah, one It's all still long the same year. year. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then who knows when it got released? I mean, it was 2021. I wasn't going out to the theaters when this came out originally. So I just totally missed it. Even though it seems like of all things, it would have gotten me out. I busted a move to see this because I thought, oh, God, some of this Del Toro, I like his work, although I agree it can be a bit patchy at times. And I thought, God, he's, he, he's done a Nightmare Alley re-release. This has got to be great. And, of course, it had been massively hyped up and all of that. It reminded me, I know you said you haven't seen Crimson Peak, Mike, but the things I didn't like about Crimson Peak were the same sort of things that I didn't like about this nightmare remake which it just it's like on paper it has all the things that i would like but it has characters who are do all these really overwrought things that don't feel authentic it just feels like okay now the character has to have this super dramatic reaction and like i said i i love Douglas Sirk movies, Fassbender movies. So it's like, I don't have a fundamental problem with people being melodramatic, but there's just something about it that feels like going through the motions. I I also wonder with this, if it harmed the film because my, so my understanding of the production is that they made about half the movie. Then they had to stop because of the pandemic. And sometime in late, 2020 or early 2021 they finished it but i think he shot like 40 hours worth of movie or something crazy and so yeah so i think it might just be a weird psychological effect of working on the same movie for so many years and coming back to i don't know i i want to give him the benefit of the doubt because like i said i i think his enthusiasm is great and just left feeling kind of bored if anything, maybe he should have turned it into like a TV series instead. I mean, I'm still so pissed about Carnival having been canceled before that third season. It felt like we were really driving towards something. And, you know, again, an amazing cast. Right now, Michael J. Anderson probably wouldn't come back because he's fucking Looney Tunes. But having like Adrian Barbeau and Clancy Brown and Clea Duvall, just so many great folks in this. And they just pulled the rug out. It's like, oh, here we are. We're mixing religion and we're mixing. We've got carnival life and all this great stuff. There's a mystery going on. It's what... 
Nightmare Alley 2021 could have been, but nope, nope. But of course, if if Nightmare Alley had been a television series, it probably would have been about 25 episodes, 25 one one hour episodes long, and I would have had to devote virtually you know, half a month to watching it. To said you know half, I would have been alright no, with thank that. You. No, I wouldn't have been okay with that because I'm really over these series where they bloat the whole thing out massively, whereas actually it could just be four nice tight hours, but actually it becomes... And as it was, the 2021 film, correcting myself there, I still thought it was too long. They chucked another half an hour on top of the two hours of the 47 version of details, which eh, arguably didn't need. I don't know. I am very curious to read more of William Lindsay Grisham's stuff. I picked up um, Monster Midway, which I believe is a nonfiction story about the Midway in the carnival. What version did you get? I just it, I found it on eBay. It's kind of an odd version. It's uh, I think Dunce is the name of the press, and it's so small and so thick it's almost a cube. <laughs> It's going to be very tough for me to go through. It's not a hardback. No, no, it's a software. Yeah, because there's a, there's a beautiful hardback, original hardback of when that first came out, which is costs costs a squillion dollars on a books, which is now one of my holy grail print items to try and stumble across. I have his Houdini, I have his Houdini book. Oh, how is it? It's great, actually. It's, it's just it's a it's a quickie job that he just did when he was on the skids and alcoholism was getting to him and, his, and, and the career that he thought he would have from Nightmare Alley didn't pan out, but it's a great read. I'd love to get, is it the Limbo Tower? Yeah. The Limbo Tower is, is his book about being on a, uh, is it a TB ward after he'd come back from the Spanish Civil War, recovering from TB in a hospital room upon his return from volunteering as on the Republican side, of course, during the Spanish Civil War, but that's not available. Anywhere I had real trouble trying to track that down. So apparently it's not very good, but I still think Lindsay writing, Grisham writing about, you know, life on a TB ward after returning from the Spanish Civil War would have to have something in it. So I heard that he got briefly interested in Scientology and then went on to say, like, oh, here's just another bunch of spooky grifters. I kind of wish he had written something about that, like, considering the way that Scientology has, uh, has developed in recent decades. Yeah, that sounds like it would have been great. You really would have probably put them in their place a little bit. Yeah, a real goodest character. A real David goodest character in the sense of someone who basically was really high up there, was actually, I mean, you know, making 60, getting paid $60,000 for the for the rights to Nightmare Alley's novel in 1946 was, was no small feat. And then it was basically downhill a long downhill slope from then on. It's so sad. Yeah, writing pulp, editing pulp magazines, knocking out books about carnivals, things like that. Now, I haven't seen Shadowlands, but I'm curious if he gets a mention because Yes, he, I thought that too. I hadn't watched that either. Yeah, because he's the husband that, um, I can't remember her name, Joy Davidman, I believe, runs away from and ends up getting with uh, C.S. Lewis and I haven't seen that movie in a long damn time, so I don't remember if it's like, oh yeah, my husband wrote about the carnival or something, but maybe in the book? Was it a book first? I don't I know. Don't, I, th- I think it was, oh, maybe it was a play. Ah, okay. But like, what a different figure than C.S. Lewis. It's like you go from this 
from this traumatized, alcoholic, carny-obsessed, noir character in who's in real life writing noir books to this like weird Christian fantasist. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I saw you spying on me earlier. No, I wasn't. Okay. See you tomorrow. Good. What the? Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine. Mostly fine. Um, why do we assume that all this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? A little. Welcome to Purgatory. Good to be here. You're living in a carnival. Hoping to win a prize. What are you going to win? Under the silver That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Under the Silver Lake. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Andrew and Sam. So, Sam, what is the latest with you? Well, I should plug my podcast, which is called Twitch of the Death Nerve, um, and some recent commentary work I've done off the top of my head. I, I did a few things for Mondo Macabro. Like uh, In the Folds of the Flesh, which is this totally demented Jalo movie about this gothic family of murderers uh, who are also, you know, sort of stuck in their, their war trauma. Um, and I also did a commentary on this film called Haunted Turkish Bathhouse, which is this amazing pinky violence ghost cat movie <laughs> that... You must see to believe. It's wild. And Andrew, what is happening in your world, sir? Just working on a few projects. Uh, have been doing some. Have been doing some video essays, which I should plug because the the company that's been doing them has been taking a little, been doing a different tangent. And Umbrella Films in Australia have been have realised they have. I think they have to up their act a bit, and if they're going to put out DVDs, and they need to actually do extras with them. So I did a visual essay for the Limey, which I've really enjoyed doing, and I also did a visual essay on Burt Reynolds' chase films, 
or Burt Reynolds car race across America films for their Burt Reynolds box set, which you can pre-order at their site. Um, and was 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 reacquainted with the world of 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 nineteen seventies cross country race films and just how many there were. Oh boy, yeah, we did an episode on Gumball Rally recently, so I went down that rabbit hole. Oh yes, I did. We did did all those. Did the the Cannonball films? All the ca- they're all, so all, fun. Yeah, yeah. Diminishing returns slightly with some of them, but uh, <laughs> Speed Trap or Speed Zone, right? We did, uh, yes, Speed Zone. I sort of also reminded me how, relatively speaking, how fewer people seem to live in America, or how how much less develop and how much less traffic there was. Yeah, there's there's no traffic here at all. The most traffic you get is when the old folks' home wheels out the patients and leaves them in the street for Frankenstein to hit. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller. They are all available through the podcast network Weirding Way Media, which is available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. You can also sign up for Sam's patreon over there while you're at it every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world (laughs) 